Hello, and welcome to CAA Conversations. I'm Karen Gurgley, an Associate Professor of Art at Graceland University in Lamoni, Iowa. And today I'm joined by Roland Bentecourt and Brian C. Keene. Roland Bentecourt is a Professor of Art at the University of California, Irvine, whose forthcoming book with Princeton University Press is entitled Byzantine Intersectionality, Sexuality, Gender, and Race in the Middle Ages. Brian C. Keene is an assistant professor of art history at Riverside City College and formerly associate curator of manuscripts at the Getty Museum. His 2019 edited volume is Towards a Global Middle Ages, Encountering the World Through Illuminated Manuscripts. Thank you both for joining me here today for this conversation. Welcome. Hi all, thank you for having us. Uh, this is Roland speaking. Um, my pronouns are he or they or L in Spanish. Um, I would like to begin by acknowledging that um, my school, UC Irvine, is located on the shared ancestral territory of the Akhtaman peoples and the Tongva peoples. And I would also begin to, by explaining that, um, so I am Latinx and my family is Cuban and I'm a first generation American, which definitely, um, influences the way I see my work and my place in art history, um, as well as a queer scholar. Hi, this is Brian Keane. I would also like to acknowledge my pronouns as he and they, or el and ella. I want to acknowledge that the land, the water, the natural resources and the air that surround my home and workplace are the traditional ancestral and unceded territories of the Tataviam, Chumash, Tongva and Kahuya peoples. And these networks continue to thrive to this day. And I'm grateful for the amount of learning and unlearning that I need to do to continue to situate myself on these lands. Like Roland mentioned, my background as a queer individual certainly informs my scholarship. I've also recently been coming to terms more and more with being a gender non-conforming individual, breaking from the oppressive heterosexism of the academy and the museum world, and thinking about my own background on uh, both sides of the family. What does it mean to have adopted uh, parents and grandparents and to figure out one's lineage uh, coming from Spain to Mexico or from Greece to Italy and the US? So, um, I think we all have a lot of work to do, learning about ourselves, learning about our pasts and our presence. I think, Roland, to begin the conversation, we've had a lot of discussion about the work that we do, what informs our work, who our audiences are. And I've really been inspired by the conversations we've had and the way that you embrace a range of methodologies from past to present, from pop culture to uh, the archival. So I wonder if I could bounce the conversation to you to talk about your previous work uh, and then I'll follow in thinking about how our work dovetails and where we're moving forward. Of course. Um, so I am a Byzantine art historian. Um, in the most um, conventional definition, that is how I will define myself, but I often do a lot more than that. A lot of my interest in the Byzantine world have definitely looked at the afterlife of Byzantium, for lack of a better term, its various uses um, throughout, um, in particular, the 19th and 20th century and the 21st century, which is often a topic that is um, less discussed by art historians looking at these Byzantine modern connections. Um, as well, I have a long-standing interest in popular culture. I would say that I am an art historian because of my interest in popular culture, and I'm a Byzantinist because of my interest in popular culture, and that is definitely very much contemporary popular culture. Um, so this is, these are areas that I always use to think through my professional work and also the work that I also do professionally um, within those spaces. Uh, I most recently have, um, I'm publishing a book 
as was mentioned, Byzantine intersectionality, that looks at the history of sexuality, gender, and race in the Byzantine Empire, essentially looking at these close narratives about these different topics and seeing how they intersect with one another. My previous work has been in an intellectual history of the senses, focusing in particular about sight, touch, and the role of the faculty of imagination in Byzantine art. And I have another forthcoming book on essentially the performance of gospel lectionaries um, in the Byzantine church and the liturgy. So someone who's very interested in how spaces are also enlivened through human action and the deep intellectual histories that we bring to bear on our daily habitual acts. I love that you began by acknowledging that you're a, Byzantine, a Byzantinist in the traditional sense. And so I would also echo that I sort of situate myself between various worlds as an Italianist and that I'm trained in uh, the Italian medieval and Renaissance art history, but I also work on manuscripts and I'm a manuscript scholar and previously a manuscripts curator. And it took a while to come to terms that I was a curator first and all of those other things second. But now I've embraced this role as educator, which is always what my passion has been. And thinking about the way that our preparation in the academy is often insufficient for addressing the greater concerns that we have. So you've mentioned popular culture and later medievalisms from the 19th century to today. And that's also been a space where I found myself wanting to interact more and more, especially at the museum, learning from a decade of working with undergraduate interns and being inspired by their interests to think differently about the way that we train uh, scholars in the field of art history. I think there's a lot of contemporary art that has inspired me to think differently about the fields of my training. Growing up in Los Angeles during the outbreak of AIDS and being a queer individual coming to terms with that and seeing you know, AIDS, people living with AIDS in our homes constantly and thinking about what that meant coming to terms with my own sexuality and how the stigma uh, of being a queer individual or of AIDS still perpetuates in the academy. And so I think in conversations that you and I have had, that's been a real driving force is thinking about what informs our work in terms of the material, how we define our spaces of work, but also who informs our work, both people in the past and the present. So I wonder if we could transition for a moment to think about those audiences that we work with. I know from the museum space, I was always thinking about our audiences as being anyone that walked in the door or that found us online, but that didn't have prerequisites, that we couldn't assume any pre-knowledge, but often found ourselves countering preconceptions or misconceptions about race, gender, sexuality, or even the terms that you and I have very loosely used, medieval, Byzantine. Um, and so I wonder if you could say a little bit about your work, how you've thought about audience, um, and then I'm happy to bounce off a few of those ideas as well. Yeah, audience um, becomes more and more important as I continue to do my work. Um, I know that the, the stereotype when you are in academia, particularly in a tenure track job and have the pressure of publishing is that you will have to address audience when you write your book proposal. Uh, and that's, that's definitely true. Um, those audiences for many academic presses is not very relevant. And for others, it's very important. And it's a question that oftentimes manifests itself not just as who are you writing for and who is this book for, because it's oftentimes assumed that it's an academic audience, but sometimes it's more of a question of reach. What is the scope of your project and what you are aiming to do? For me, in many ways, that has become a lot more concrete about who am I writing for. Um, I often like to think to myself that I wrote 
Byzantine intersectionality, for example, for Tumblr, that it was written essentially for a new generation, definitely below me, that was really coming to terms with issues of gender, sexuality, and race online in very elaborate and concrete ways that many of my own scholars um, around me could not even come close to fathoming in the casual conversations or in the more formal um, conversations as well. And that divide is definitely a very difficult one because when you're so um, wanting to do justice to living populations and understanding to do justice to those populations um, on their own terms, it becomes a little bit more difficult when you have to then also operate in an academic space that is often very um, conventional, conservative, traditional, no matter what. Um, and I think that for those of us who definitely step out of the bounds of our the spaces we should stay in, um, I think we're the ones that oftentimes want to say we are traditional um, Byzantinists, traditional Italianists, even though we're probably the least of that definition for many of our colleagues. And so I, I was very amused and deeply related um, to that disclaimer as well that we both had. Um, and for me, I think this question of relating to audiences really starts from the fact of, as I said, doing justice, working ethically, and understanding that whatever you do and write today should be outdated and you should be saying things that have evolved by even the time that your work is published. I mean, that is the real dream. If culture has changed enough that um, we are more affirming in a span of two or three years um, than if it were all staying the same. And I know that as um, a curator and also as an educator, you struggle with a lot of those issues. And I would love to hear more about how you deal with that, especially as we both deal with issues of the medieval past and oftentimes a history that's very much focused on Christianity and very much focused on some of the more conservative aspects of Christianity. That is to say, looking at spaces like religious spaces and religious works of art that often are seen as not having the leeway to be radical. I love that question. I, I would say that in working through exhibitions, that's often a staging ground for coming to terms with a lot of these ideas. And in many instances, it's putting on view in the gallery objects that have been in collections for decades, but telling new stories. And sometimes those new stories are not new for academics. Indeed, they're often not new for the academic world. Often we're contending with 40 plus years of scholarship. So I remember a really powerful moment where I situated three African objects from the Getty collection in the same case. They're was a Quran from Tunisia, a leaf made for a Christian community in Egypt, uh, and a, a gospel book from Ethiopia. And there was outrage from a number of visitors to situate those objects in the same case. And some of the outrage, I think, came from visitors who brought their own confessional identities into the space that didn't want to see uh, an object for our Islamic devotion next to objects for Christian devotion. But I think we of course recognize that though there are the stereotypes or the ideas of a Christian Mediterranean in air quotes, um, but that of course the Christian communities of the Mediterranean were living next to and often in close quarters with Jews, Muslims, and people of other confessional identities. So I think that that's often so much of the work that we do is countering 
those preconceptions, but again, in the museum space, not having prerequisites, much the way that you would do in an introductory seminar um, or course with undergraduate students, trying to feel out those preconceptions. You mentioned Tumblr. I've been looking a lot lately at the hashtag uh, medieval TikTok or medieval Twitter, and often those spaces that academics like to invade to correct preconceptions but the world is responding to our field whether we like it or not whether we understand it or not whether we think that what they're responding to is correct or not and yet i think that is such a powerful aspect about the the pervasiveness of the work that we do and why it's so important that you mentioned that tumblr generation that might be encountering your book even the cover is something that's immediately attractive to someone that's used to an instagram you know tile work where you start to see hey there's a person of color there's someone that you know the book talks about trans identity maybe there's something for me in this volume and that's what i thought about in the galleries from visitors uh, again the undergraduate interns that i mentioned who would come up to me and say where are the queer individuals in this museum where are the people of color in this institution and realizing that for 35 years my department for example had never addressed queerness, had never addressed race. And so just introducing those topics in the gallery felt radical. And yet I think as scholars, we know it's not radical. So what more should we be doing, in fact, to continue that? And your comment that I'd like to bounce back to you about our work should be immediately outdated, right? I think, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts from the dedicatory statement in your volume, which I found so powerful because you were, it seems, thinking about what was happening in the moments leading up to the publication through the people that you dedicated the volume to? And how would the book change perhaps if, we, if you were to rewrite it or add another chapter now in light of everything that's happened in 2020? I know that's a loaded question, but. Yeah, no, this is something that I, I always um, think about um, because with the dedicatory inscription, which um, for those who do not have the book in front of you, um, it is dedicated to a series of people um, like Anita Hill, um, Dr. Ford, um, Matthew Shepard, Marsha P. Johnson, Chelsea Manning, Monica Lewinsky, essentially people who each of their stories in our popular culture um, have defined a certain type of narrative that the book covers. For example, my chapter on the Empress Theodora and slut shaming looks um, is very much in, written in mind with the experiences of Monica Lewinsky um, and really trying to think through the wealth of terms that we now have to describe with nuance so many of these violences that culture enacts on marginalized, oppressed people. Um, really trying to think through those types of stories and demonstrate that this book is very much written for, for these people. It's written for people like them. And it was always very difficult because of the fact that as I was writing the book, other names could obviously have been included um, for, you know, I could of course included George Floyd there as well. Um, I also, in fact, knowing where the country was going and the developments, like I had Dr. Ford on there, but I also wanted to represent Anita Hill's story as well, which I think is so important. So that was um, one of the additions that I had to the acknowledgments. And so even, even with the acknowledgments, I always felt like I had to keep updating them. Sadly enough, since these are obviously people who are victims of systems and empires. Um, and I think it's still very important. One of the things that I often struggle with as a medievalist, and especially someone who is rooted on this idea that I work on the Byzantine Empire, 
Um, if I work on something contemporary, it's very easy to say, well, you're not thinking about the politics the, of it. You're not thinking about all the problematics of it. As someone who has an interest in theme spaces like Disneyland, that's something that colleagues will often be quick to criticize. And, you know, I, that's another conversation for another time, um, especially thinking about how diverse a space like Disneyland is in Southern California, who the people are who go to Disneyland, who are locals, who works there. It's a very different story than that which is imagined um, in academia. But um, moving just completely beyond that and thinking also about these criticisms, I need to remember that I work on an empire and I work on objects that were used in the capital of the empire, um, justifying the brutality of empire um, and promoting that brutality in many ways. And so that's one of the reasons why um, Chelsea Manning is a very important figure for me, but the, my trans chapter is dedicated to Chelsea Manning, not just because Chelsea is a trans woman um, who has suffered immense amounts of um, stereotypical trans misogyny, but also because precisely she is a trans woman whose life has been destroyed through imperial processes and through a resistance to empire. And so for me, that was also the nuance of finding stories that could be legible enough, but that also did justice to the stories I was discussing. So I, I'd, I'd love to talk to, to you more about these issues because curating, that's also something that you need to do. You're not only just Art historians have a really toxic idea that objects speak for themselves, um, and objects do not speak for themselves. Um, objects speak at best in dialogue with us, in dialogue with so many different factors. It's a conversation that's also not a two-way one. And so I'd love to hear more about how you control, um, direct the unruliness of objects in that sense. I love the question. And I think if I could take a step back, I, in thinking again about the names that you've identified for us and that continuing state, I think something that's occurred to me in the last several months is the way that for white academics who have wanted the litany of names that include George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, how often white, hetero, cis academics ignore the names Tony McDade, Nina Pop, Monica Diamond, and there's that constant act as a queer individual of remembering those names, of stating those names. Um, you know, you mentioned Matthew Shepard, and I remember having a really moving and harrowing drive through Laramie, the same way that I still walk the Christopher Street, do uh, Street docks when I'm in New York City to think about Sylvia Rivera and uh, Marsha P. Johnson, or go to Miami, where you're from, and think about the Pulse shootings, and think about what our lives look like as queer individuals, traveling in North Africa, in Turkey, in uh, the Ukraine, and Russia. Those are spaces that you know, I didn't feel safe inhabiting or entering. And I think so often we've talked about even in the academy, those are spaces that queer, trans, people of color often also don't feel safe or they're not spaces that have traditionally been created as safe, nor have museums for that matter. So I think to your question, you've mentioned empire and museums are certainly the product of imperialism. And uh, it was thinking about Adam Miyashiro, our colleague in medieval English studies, recently talking about our field of global medieval studies, which I've been sort of invested in. And my recent volume is all about a global middle ages that you've contributed to Roland and a number of others. But so much of that work has to be to counter the imperialism and the colonial legacies of our field and to constantly make that a part of our work. Um, I think from a curatorial perspective, I think about the work of Maura Riley. Her book, Curatorial Activism, is a kind of signpost and guidebook for the work that we can and should be doing in museums. Her sort of manifesto 
which I think I read your volume on Byzantine intersectionality as a kind of manifesto for the field, not just of Byzantine studies, but of um, modern and modern medievalisms and medieval studies in general. But Mara says that we have to resist masculinism and sexism, tackle white privilege and Western centrism, challenge heterosexism and lesbo-homophobia. And I think we would also add, you know, challenging transphobia today. So I think it sounds like we're finding that common ground in thinking about our audiences broadly, not just, let's say, for our advisors or for the tenure review committee or for the academic presses, but for younger minds, younger audiences, um, and also anyone, in fact, that would walk into our classroom or into our galleries. I would say, maybe to bounce it back to, there was a statement that was made last year by Dr. Jane Chu, who was the former um, chair of the National Endowment for the Arts. And to your question about the arts, she says that, you know, the most important book for a museum employee, director or curator to read is the US Census. If we don't know who our neighbors are, who our communities are, and we're not being informed by those neighbors or those community members, then we're not doing our job. And I think in conversations, you've really inspired me that if we as academics are not paying attention to what's happening online in social media, then we're not doing our jobs. In fact, I'd say we're doing less than half of our job because so much of that conversation is moving forward. So if we can shift the conversation to thinking about works of art, I would just add that nothing in 2020 should be new to us, right? Nothing in your book should strike us as new, even though you've absolutely brought in new sources You've read, as Walter Benjamin would say, against the grain. You've brought in sort of uncovered, censored, or erased pasts. But none of this is new. We have to acknowledge that the, you know, looking at technology today is not new. Acknowledging systemic racism is not new. And it shouldn't come from people of color, from queer individuals, from women, Anita Hill, Dr. Ford, to remind us of the urgency of our work. So if I can throw it back to you, you've said so beautifully about what it means to look at works of art uh, against raking light. Could you describe that a little bit for our listeners? Because it resonated so much with me as a curator. Yeah, no, completely. And I love what you said about how inhospitable so much of the work that art historians need to do can be um, for queer people, for trans people, um, for cis women, this, a lot, it's, it's actually, that's the conversation that as art historians, we need to have, and we need to have sooner rather than later. Um, because in my graduate training, when this idea of like primary contact with works of art was often being stressed, it was a constant repetition in my mind that I was lazy because I didn't want to go spend one or two years abroad um, in Turkey or Greece. And all these things were constantly um, held over me. Also the idea that I wasn't well-traveled enough, um, which of course, you know, as a first generation American was difficult and I did not have the privileges, even though um, I will say that my mother tried very hard as much as possible. It was my 15th birthday gift to take me to Europe and we went to London, Paris and Rome and it was a great sacrifice for her. And it was my sort of quinceañero um, gift. And, you know, for all these reasons, art can be very um, hard to access and also inhospitable. And that creates another layer of withdrawal. Like, you might not feel comfortable going to archives. And there's so many colleagues who have told me in confidence of the levels of abuse that they've actually had, especially having to be by themselves, taking pictures in rural areas 
and being, I'm not going to say, but many, many things have happened during archival research um, and a lot of different forms of violence happen. And that's something that our historians really need to take seriously and think forward as particularly in advising both our undergrads and our graduate students of what is safe for them. We need to be conscious of those types of conversations. And that leads directly into aspects like social media because, you know, one of the amazing things, and we've discussed this in the past, is the reason why Getty manuscripts are finding themselves as the backdrops of TikToks is because the Getty has made efforts to put things online and produce high resolution images that really have very few restrictions. Um, publishing can be immensely um, prohibitive, even after you get the tenure track job, even after you get everything, unless you have thousands upon thousands of dollars to pay for book subventions, to cover image rights, publishing might still be inaccessible to you. And so spaces like TikTok, like Tumblr, that sometimes officially and unofficially deploy medieval images are very important. And what's interesting about those spaces also is that they are a form of discourse. And it's very hard to take one TikTok and make meaning out of it. You need to understand it systematically. And you can't just understand the medieval TikTok. You have to understand the languages that TikTok has, um, the sort of different genres of TikToks that different creators use, which creators lean to one and to another. The same could be said to YouTube, which has been a long time um, research fascination of mine to think about these almost very traditional ideas of genre um, and medium. And oftentimes, those of us who have the knowledge to understand a medieval manuscript might not have that research knowledge. And these discursive practices are changing very rapidly. And so you really need um, these fluencies that are often inaccessible um, to many of our colleagues. So for me, thinking about um, works of art, it's not just about the challenges of archival research, but also the challenges of accessing works when they're so present in our social media. And I do believe that you can create um, deep narratives of why a certain manuscript page out of all the other ones out there that could have been accessible to put it as backdrop is appearing in a TikTok or why a certain image is being circulated with a certain type of meme. My favorite meme, um, which is known as historians will say they were just roommates, it often uses a medieval manuscript of two same gender people embracing or kissing and then it adds a picture of a guy saying, which captioned historian saying, oh my God, they were roommates. Um, and I think that really brings us so perfectly also to that challenge as well of the fact that these audiences um, are being very critical of our role as historians, of the fact that we, it's not to say you can't acknowledge the obvious, because I think that fits into a lot of stereotyping and a lot of the homophobia and related transphobia that a lot of us have faced um, as queer figures, um, particularly growing up both with our families and our friends. Um, but it is the reality of the fact that when a person of color, a queer person, a trans person approaches the archives with the sensibilities that we have, when we look to sources, they tell radically different stories no matter what. Um, we begin to see things and recognize things that are often only for certain in-crowds. There are aspects of gossip, secrecy, concealment that I think is very hard to communicate um, to our cis heterosexual colleagues 
about what we are seeing because they haven't experienced, not just that they haven't experienced the violences, more importantly for me, it's that they haven't experienced, experienced the forms of concealment and the cryptic languages that come out of being a marginalized person. And in a space where, you know, QAnon and other conspiracy theories are thriving, it becomes almost even more oppressive to try to say, hey, these are stories worth telling and you have to look in raking light because they're not gonna be on the surface. You have to look at what the ridges and formations and landscape is looking obliquely to try to catch glimpses of these lives, which now more and more can be sort of conflated and collided with ideas of conspiracy or overreading or cherry picking. So for me, raking light is really how I think about, you know, this very, um, conventional um, term that comes from the curatorial world, especially from conservation, um, because for me, raking light is, is so, using that term is so subversive for me um, as someone who has always had technical knowledge lorded over me as an art historian. You should have done more research. And it's like, well, but how do you create the intimacies with the people that have these very expensive technologies to allow you into exclusive spaces which require often several curators and conservators standing over you to help you. How do you create those relationships if you are a, let's say, visibly queer person in the archives? How do you actually manage to get there? Those are very challenging things. And so for me, taking on Raking Light as sort of this um, moment of subversion, sort of a re reclamation of a term like queer and saying that we can look in Raking Light, even if we don't have that access to privilege, that we can you know, tilt a work of art in a certain angle and see what light sheds on it. And more importantly, when you look in Raking Light, you're also looking for the shadows. And that's really, it's those imprints of absence and loss that I'm really always looking for. And understanding that they connect. They are parts of patterns. They tell us things, not just because of what they self-evidently proclaim, but rather what they systematically show as part of these networks of rivulets of suffering and erasure. I just in this last few moments where I, while you've been speaking, I've jotted down several words, privilege when you discuss travel and the way that, you know, so much of privilege as academics can be invested in the spaces that we can access, also concealment, inhospitable and inhospitable spaces and shadows. I'm reminded of a moment in graduate school in Florence when I went to the Archivio di Stato to look for some of the documents that Michael Rocchi had published in his Forbidden Friendships and thinking about your meme that you've mentioned, this idea of friendships or roommates, um, and often the, the side eye that you'd get from the archivist, knowing that you were in fact looking at evidence for individuals who had been condemned to death because of sodomitical acts. And I think of Bob Mill's work in defining sodomy as any act that didn't lead to procreation. So again, some of what I love about your work is that you've challenged the reader to think beyond categories. So what Bob did was sort of sodomy cannot just be thought about as anal penetration, but anything that doesn't lead to procreation, oral sex, uh, masturbation, and using these terms unapologetically. And so I love, you know, we can talk about your chapter about the eunuch, for example, it often frustrates me reading scholarship where the assumption about eunuchs is the total ablation, the full castration, and not understanding nuance even within eunuch categories. But you also mentioned 
shadows. And I think about so much of our work as queer individuals is about lurking in the shadows and trying not to be seen. But also I think about the work of the USC's One Archive, um, Cruising the Archives exhibition or Cock, Paper, Scissor, the exhibition about uh, collage work and how so much of our work has to be about piecing together those elements of the past, but often in secrecy. So in spending time in the Archivio, reading those documents and then going to the actual street corners or the alleys where individuals were condemned in the 15th century and seeing that you can still suffer from prejudice today, being called a finocchio by a group of young men walking out of a bar. Um, so slurs about your identity just because you're in a space and then finding yourself in you know, subterranean spaces, bars or bathhouses and seeing that this, imagine what were the discourses like in the 15th century that led to the persecution. So your example of raking light is really powerful because of course that evidence is in the archives. We can read these names, we've known about these names, but I often think about two, you didn't use the word trauma, but I think about trauma a lot for queer individuals. As you mentioned, Matthew Shepard and Marsha P. Johnson, I'm reminded of our indigenous colleagues who talk about trauma. There was just a post yesterday by Leilani Sabsalian who talks about having to step out of the archive because reading about erasure and censorship and taking of lands and uh, desecrating spaces, especially in this moment of border walls being set up, and we can think about the metaphoric border walls in our own academy or museums that need to come down, that are on traditional or ancestral lands that ignore or erase or censor those experiences. And so for queer individuals, indigenous individuals, uh, people of color, stepping out of those spaces because of the trauma and not to suggest a kind of essentialism of categories, although I might think about Spivak's idea of strategic essentialism in a way. And you and I have talked about this in your work intersectionality is a term that perhaps we should define for our listeners, not assuming that everyone will understand the sort of origins, but also the implications of the term, and then getting to the terms gender, sexuality, and race that is so important in the work that we do. And just to say, everything we do as historians is anachronistic in some way. We have to embrace anachronism. None of the terms that we have today are sufficient to describe or explain the experiences of the past, and yet we have to use them in order to gain buy-in. So I use medieval, you use Byzantine. I say global Middle Ages, you say global Middle Ages. We have to use terms and then again, as you said, subvert those terms and categories. So could I bounce it back to you to think about categories of gender, sexuality, race, and what the work is to be done moving forward? Of course, and that is so important. I mean, one of the things that I've this constant frustration of how can you apply these terms to the past? How can you do this? Like where, where is like the historical responsibility? Um, the more and more that I think about this and I look at the evidence, like just working, just really immersing yourself in primary sources, you begin to realize how much we created. And I use the we here in the less like actually part of this group, but just um, how much the Middle Ages was made in our own image. And that is to say in 19th and 20th century, most conservative images of the past. Whereas it's sort of the same way as talking to a high school teacher and saying, you don't have to teach them a narrative of the dark ages and the decline and fall of Rome. Like they don't know that. So why, why begin there? If you don't give that toxicity to them, they don't have to deal with that. And it's the same thing, like, especially like thinking about, um, Bob Mills' work on sodomy, precisely that. Like so much of that has been us, um, and again, not not us, but um, our fields in the past 
um, projecting certain ideas that were so deeply anachronistic and have caused such deep harm. I mean, it's incredible when you read um, medical texts um, that were translated in the 18th, um, 19th century from the Byzantine Empire, um, where you literally have sometimes a resistance to translating the recipes or repeating the recipes for um, contraceptives lest someone try to use them. Like there's such a clear and unabashed fear of what our primary sources actually say. Um, and this concealment, I mean, I can't tell you how many times scholars have said that they've been denied access to certain resources because whether it be librarians or um, monastic groups do not want you to see prohibitions or comments about homosexuality or same gender desire within monasteries. Um, there's been so much casual erasure as well with these terms that when I think about anachronism, I mean, it's, it's sort of become, as a queer person invested in these issues, it has become a little bit illegible to me. And more importantly, as a first-generation American, as a Cuban American who went to a school, um, a high school, and basically K through 12 education was predominantly Latinx. Um, you know, we most of us spoke Spanish. Um, most of us pronounced our names differently at home that we did in school, and we never thought about that. We never thought that we we're constantly code switching and translating. And so, this idea of a fixity of identity to me is just mind blowing. I just it does does not relate. The, every identity for me is is a spectrum. Um, to be queer or gay. Um, in my life is very different to what that looks like being queer or gay in my family. Um, it's radically different definitions and radically different formations of the self. Also, I'm sure many people will not hesitate calling me gay, even though I often prefer queer. Um, but I will say that I am, my identity formation of being gay is radically different than that of someone in the 70s or 80s or 90s, and definitely very different from, you know, Gen Z on TikTok or whatever social media um, the other generations are accusing them of using too much. Um, and so for me, that's very much been the lead, the almost what I take for granted. A lot of this has been taking for granted that my identity is valuable. And I think that's something that a lot of my colleagues have never really wanted to respect in many ways. And I use colleagues here very um, broadly um, in the field, which is to say that when we think about intersectionality, it is a term coined by Kimberly Crenshaw um, that really defines the fact, from, especially um, in Kimberly's work coming from um, legal studies, looking at um, legal definitions of cases of discrimination and understanding, of course, that um, in the cases that she was dealing with, um, women of color um, were basically the cases being made that there was no discrimination about women of color because women and men of color were being hired, for example. And so therefore, um, no, there could possibly not be um, discrimination since these two categories in their fixedness and separation were fine, essentially fine in scare quotes, definitely. Um, and so from there emerges this idea that the different intersections of identity um, create radically different subjectivities. And one of the most important things to stress is that this is not a, this isn't a calculator of points. This isn't like you tabulate identities and then you get a result. It really is about different intersections in immense amounts of complexity, create radically different 
subject points and how you will be able to operate and move through the world. And so for me, that has really been the goal of this book to really um, work through issues of sexuality, gender, and race. However, working through those issues, understanding that while I'm treating them alone, they're always intermeshing. As, as you go through my chapters in the book, they become more and more enmeshed, where you can talk about race without thinking about gender identity. You can talk about sexuality without, of course, thinking about gender identity. And one of the challenges for me as a Byzantinist in particular has been that so much of gender in Byzantium has been about cis women, and it's just been that. And so much connected to that study has been a fervent, fervent erasure of trans men because of the idea that they were women all along and it was their power as women that made them so holy that they could live their lives as men, um, oftentimes as male monks. Um, understood to be eunuchs. And so with these stories, um, it's very important to understand the way that archives have provided room to maneuver for certain subjectivities and deny that to other ones. There's a reason why we have stories of trans uh, men, but not trans women um, in these narratives. And if you do find evidence of trans women, I'm sure those narratives will appear and in some cases they have appeared um, outside of Byzantium, so therefore I'm not counting them in my own research that prominently, but they have appeared very much tied to very similar types of transphobia today and transmisogyny of you know, um, men in disguise. A lot of the language to discuss a lot of these figures has been women in disguise, um, you know, um, male nuns, all these you know, transvestite, all these terms that oftentimes are very much on the no-go list of most organizations. And which is why in my book, I actually, you know, while I was definitely engaging directly with the history of queer theory um, and trans studies, I was also very much, for my definition of terms, I turned to GLAD because I saw my goal in this book being as one of representation. And so therefore I turned to the leading authority about representation in media to understand what terms I would use and what guidelines of best practices I would use. And that probably seems antithetical to so much about how we are trained to think as academics. But I think that given this question again of audience, who is our audience? And if we want this book to not speak to anyone who really needs to hear it or should hear it out of dignity for their history and identity, then we need to be, you know, we need to be looking at what our best practices are um, more broadly. And so that means that, yes, transgender is an umbrella term that not only describes um, men who were assigned female at birth, but also people who are non-binary. It has a lot more latitude than we often think about. And it's really sad to see oftentimes colleagues approach these issues, not with any research, beyond maybe those books that you cited in the 90s about friendship, um, but really um, but playing just out of gut instinct and what is assumed to be a definition of a term, which is something so challenging, why it's important to define our terms, um, both in written form in a book or in um, tombstones and so forth in a, a museum exhibition. I love what you said, and again, I've jotted some things down. I wanted to linger for a second about the idea of euphemism in scholarly discourse mm -hmm. um, that appears so often in any of the work that we're doing. And then to the point of, I think, any study of the past that does not acknowledge the intersectional identities of people in the past 
is a form of anachronistic history that you cannot deny, just as we have people today that embrace, you know, a range of identities. I mean, even thinking about, is it Audre Lorde who says that there is no single issue um, or single identity issue because there are no single identity, you know, people living in this world. We all embrace, as Kimberly Crenshaw says, a range of intersecting identities. But also, again, thinking about the work that you've done, it's not so much Maybe it will be the Syriac text that you've read and translated that you've taught yourself to read Syriac to, you know, in order to access those texts. But maybe it will be the GLAD definitions that you've used that will actually help drive the field of Byzantine studies forward. In a way, you've made space through that citational equity for those scholars, whomever they may be, that might look at it, find the footnote and think, hmm. I've not encountered these terms before. Just like in the museum space for the exhibition, Outcasts, Prejudice and Persecution in the Medieval World, the strategy was to include language that would be very familiar. So cis and transgender were used. Um, and we found and heard from our officers, the people that of course know the most about what our visitors think, who our audiences are. The officer said, you know, they noticed so many people Googling cisgender, transgender. And I felt like, well, that's a good thing. I'd rather them Google cis and transgender than Charles the Bold, Duke of Burgundy, 15th century. You know, it didn't matter to me that they left the gallery understanding who Charles the Bold was. It mattered to me that they left understanding or having the tools to think more broadly about gender and sexuality. And so I think that's also the power of your work. I know that we've talked obliquely about works of art and acknowledging our role as art historians, but I wonder if we could leave in the final moments a kind of ecrastic discussion about an image or a, a narrative, thinking about text and image, which has been so much about uh, central to the work that we've done. I would think of the story of Alexander the Great from the fourth century, and we read across time, a fourth century BCE, we read across time a range of sources about his life and the Getty has a copy in the 15th century translated by a Portuguese humanist called Vasco da Lucena. He's writing for Charles the Bold, the Duke of Burgundy uh, in present-day Belgium and Luxembourg and he's referring to a first century source by Quintus Curtius Rufus. So already the act of the scholar is to situate yourself in a Portuguese humanist mind writing in French based on a Latin text about a Macedonian world ruler, right? Already that's transcending time and geographies. He begins with a prologue that tells us why he's not qualified to write this text, how his language is, his grasp of the language is probably not the best. He wasn't trained in the court setting. That's often the kind of work that we do as academics, right? Confessing. But what strikes me about his account is he tells us about this warrior in Alexander's army called Bagoas. And we see Bagoas represented as a soldier in the illuminations throughout. But in the middle of the book, he writes a second prologue for us where he tells us that we're now moving into Alexander's campaigns in the East. So that is the land beyond the Mediterranean. And he regenders Bagoas as Bagoe and refers to him as her with female pronouns, and the illuminator then shifts and depicts this individual uh, as a woman, or at least in the outward representation of courtly dress, uh, typical for women at the time. And I remember this narrative and reading what gay men and lesbians had written about this image in the present, so again, 90s and 2000s, saying that this is an example of trans history. But it wasn't until presenting that manuscript to a group of undergraduates in the study room where we were looking at the book in raking light, holding it up to the light, seeing, you know, different pentimenta changes to the composition, trying to see coats of arms. And afterwards, the students, a few students lingered and said, 
you know, we're trans and we don't feel that this is a trans narrative. There's no agency for the character Bagoas Bagwe. You as scholars have put that weight on the figure, but they would rather see the story as a regendering. And I remember sitting in that space thinking that I had accepted what other queer forefathers and mothers and individuals had written and hadn't done enough of the work myself to question the categories. But I see what you've done so brilliantly is, and I think the work that we all have to do is listen to as many different voices and perspectives as possible and realize, as you said so poignantly, you're presenting one vision, one narrative, and that your identity as a queer individual doesn't speak for all queer individuals. And I love that you reclaimed queer and made it clear that although others might identify you as gay and male, that queer is a category we can embrace. So I wonder if you could respond in some way about how it is that we continue to read against the grain or in raking light with a work of art that resists all the categories that we as scholars might want to put on the images. And yet the importance of the work that you've done is to reveal what has been concealed. Thank you, Brian. That's a great question because I think it also, it's such a healthy way of balancing a conversation here that is not simply about, you cannot use that term, the term is not appropriate coming from external forces, but also thinking about the conversation that we have within communities. And I think it's, it's sort of the same thing of like, you know, you can't insult my family, but I will talk about my family and the challenges as a queer person. Like that type of like, the sort of dimension and sensibility of like the difficult conversations we need to have, but it's about having them in the audiences and spaces that these conversations matter to and are important to. Um, having a cis colleague complain that trans isn't a good term to use really doesn't carry much weight for me because I worry about those whose past has been erased for so long and who will, it will be continued to be erased. And I think that right now, I think we're definitely in a, in a time of developing our vocabulary and thinking more complexly not critically, but with more complexity about how we are approaching all these different issues. Um, and for me, that's been, you know, I think if my next book project is really going around this question of secrecy in many ways, because, and I, and I think about, you know, um, siege warfare treaties saying, I, everything I found about this topic it's difficult to comprehend. The Greek is terrible. I had to rewrite it all from all the archives in Constantinople. None of it makes sense. So let me explain it to you again here. Also, I think these things can only be approached through unknowing, through some sort of mystical unknowing. And these questions of secrecy um, that here have a methodological explanation um, to approach not knowing um, in this type of subject doesn't often have that level of criticality, especially when you think that our stories get translated multiple times. You know, I'm, I'm working with Syriac texts because those are the earliest texts that we have of Greek texts, which we have retranslated back into Greek in later centuries, but were originally written in Greek. I know it's difficult often at times for a Byzantinist to even wrap their head around these things. And so they often get cloistered in different corners. And so for me, that was one of the challenges of how do I give the respect that they possibly deserve to figures who have narratives that are very clear and providing room for people who maybe the, the stories tell us they lived um, 
there was some sort of like regendering in the text as you describe or other types of narratives, really approaching it with nuance and understanding the conversations that have been happening in you know, our community. And there are many, um, there are trans scholars um, who are medievalists working on these issues. And so that for me is very important um, to understand and have these, you know, sometimes they're hard conversations, but oftentimes they're just giddy conversations that we're having these discussions. Um, and for me, one of the most powerful pressing um, aspects was that in all of these introductions, especially with um, the trans monks, a lot of these introductions to these texts often repeated so many trans stereotypes as to why these narratives um, go the way they do. There were all these things about, you know, um, abusive husbands and the figures are fleeing. And for me, a lot of it was like, okay, so how do we deal with a text that might have in many ways um, various degrees of transphobia, but is giving us a scrap of a life that whether it existed or not in these terms, also was still at least a model for um, ideation and possibility. Um, I think for me, that's, that's actually been a lot of me, a lot of how I've approached this. My method has also been to think about, again, a medieval audience. Like what happens to a person who might feel unsettled in the gender they were assigned, listening to a story about a monk who, yes, you have stories um, like Eugenia, who has a moment of living in a male monastery, and then there's this sort of revelation, as it's often described, of their gender identity um, as a woman, and they continue their life as a woman. But what about a person listening to a narrative of a um, trans monk who says, please, when I die, do not prepare my body. I don't want my brother to know, my brothers to ever know. Please don't ever tell anyone. Those are the cries that many of us can sadly relate to. Um, this fear of outing in many ways, um, the fears of, and the, what's so powerful there is that it's not a fear of outing for violences or exclusion. It's a fear of just basic dignity to never question that. And I think that those types of sensibilities is something that only queer scholars can offer to this, and using queer here very expansively to include um, our trans colleagues as well, is to understand these cries as well as the insults lodged against us. A lot of people ask, you know, do these projects make the past modern? For me, oftentimes, they actually make our presence so medieval. And that is not to say medieval in a pejorative term. It demonstrates how little certain things have changed, how certain tropes have persisted over the ages, which is deeply disturbing. And also, more importantly, it shows me the, the spaces that certain figures had in the Middle Ages that we do not have today in our own culture. And that's, I think that's also very disturbing to see that, you know, everyone's like, oh, but the past was transphobic and homophobic. I'm like, yeah, there's that language there, but it's literally a language that's also riling against sex work and these things. And when you come down to it, you realize, wait, this is just someone who walked down the street of Constantinople and saw all these people and got mad that they existed, but they existed. And that's for me is, and they did not have the privilege to be written down. And so how do we use text subversively? How do we use images subversively? It often means that we have to look creatively at our methods and think, you know, 
is that a line across the chest of a figure or is it a scar? Like, how do we think about that? What are our visual vocabularies? Where do we find evidences for me? The biggest question, like, how do you, how do you begin to find evidence to build vocabularies for empowerment of the past? I, I said sort of half-heartedly that our work really is not for those senior academics or for our advisors or whatever, but in some ways it really is also that there are things that I certainly put in the galleries and curated that I was thinking of grad professors who said, the global turn is over, you're wasting your time. And yet I wanted to resist and put, you know, objects and narratives in the galleries, putting, you know, Indian giant manuscripts next to uh, Ethiopian books, just to sort of unstable that and, you know, desettle that category, but also because of the audiences, right? If I have giants walking into the gallery, people from Ethiopia, I want them to see themselves and to see how their narrative can be presented, but then also not to stop there. You know, we've talked before about, you know, how audio guides can bring in other voices, you with, you know, social media and, you know, tweeting, retweeting, reposting on Instagram. This is all active uh, or activist work, right? Yeah. And I think we also, I mean, code switching in this way is, happens as well. Like we are, we're constantly, you know, my biggest fear in any type of work that is attempting to empower anyone or give the potential tools for empowerment is to also think about, you know, like, well, I need to also convince my colleagues that this book is taught by the people in power. I need to also, and so like playing into stereotypes, like I also sometimes have to do, I need to convince, convince you that there is some medicalized, surgicalized idea of transness in the middle ages because that's what you want in your sort of transphobic imagining. And then I need to actually be like, no, but that's not that. Yes, there are gendered surgical practices that exist in the evidence, but also this is not at all what it means to be trans. And let's talk about like not gender nonconformity and all the figures who identified in some capacity um, differently than their assigned gender, and yet never, you know, they were not seek they were not seeking any of these practices. Let's let's strip off these stereotypes because oftentimes those stereotypes are there in the literature because they are stereotypes, because they are transphobic. And so... But also it's wonderful the way you've sort of looked to science, right, which I can say in air quotes, that there's a necessity in a way to ground it in something scientific so that the people that need to be convinced have the buy-in. And then to say, okay, now let's back up. We didn't need any of that to justify the fact that there are trans people. It's sort of, I have this book of uh, Leilani Berasamasaki Simpson, as we have always done, and she talks about presence and in the present that yes, you can look to biology and archeology span to justify, let's say indigenous um, travel and um, heritage. But we've known that as indigenous people through oral history. And you've done the same thing in your book so beautifully that for those, that dual audience that you've talked about of academics who might need convincing and not conservative in a political way, but also those you know, individuals who are trans, who will want to say, okay, we didn't need the science to justify, exactly. you know, non-binary and non-conforming identities. And so I think you've so beautifully straddled those two different worlds in a respectful way, right? It's not, I think so much, there's often the fear that subversive work is disrespectful. And it's, of course, it's not, I think, respectability politics aside, it's about giving, making space and um, revealing those voices that have otherwise been silenced. Yeah, and it's it comes down just to like the ethics of you know even I, something I didn't say earlier about the terms we use. Uh, a lot of the terms that I use is because I 
I often thought that not using those terms would be the unethical course of action. That to not use the word trans is actually the unethical part. Because every time that we say that something is either trans before trans or we don't call it trans, you're actually in a very, in the one-liner, you are supporting every right-wing pundit who is saying trans didn't exist. This is a modern Western creation. You're, you're implicitly defending that argument. And so you also, you can't define how your work is being used. You know, I have people who cite my first book and say the opposite of literally what my book is fighting against. Um, so you can't control how your footnotes, how you are used as a footnote, but you can be as prickly and resistant to being dragged along into certain footnotes as possible. Um, and that I think is a very important part of this type of labor, as long as it comes from a position of care um, and investment and conversation, of course. Well, since you said the word care, I'll just say, you know, to all my curatorial colleagues, you know, the word curate comes from curare, to care for. And yet we so often only think about the objects and we're caring for a kind of narrative of these objects in a moment in time. And again, talking to indigenous scholars who say, you want this object to live in 1469 because it has that date on it. But that object is in your hands today. What are you doing with it? That struck me as so powerful that why am I telling a 1469 or attempting to tell a 1469 narrative when I have a narrative in 2019 when this conversation happened that could be relevant for audiences in 2019? Yeah, I always think so much about this in relation to, the, to Hagia Sophia because I think to myself, okay, if we leave Hagia Sophia in the mid-6th century, the product of Justinian, the fact of the matter is that, is that it emerged after a riot in the city where they burned down the church Justinian kills a large chunk of the population of the city, and it is one of the most brutal imperial monuments ever created. It is, you probably shouldn't teach it in your classes if you think about the ethics of how Hagia Sophia emerges. But when you think, you know, and we know nothing, very little about the liturgy at Hagia Sophia in the sixth century, we know so little about that, the realities of that period beyond the, those textual descriptions of the history of its emergence, that Hagia Sophia really is a a monument that emerges in its own right. It is built in its own right in every period, whether it be in the 11th century or in the present, you know, with its um, reconversion, all this language about its um, being handed over to the religious ministry um, in Turkey and now becoming a mosque again, all this often Islamophobic language that really wants to take, dial back the clock. And I'm just here sitting like, and something that Dorothy Kim is also very good at saying, like, White supremacists love that we're playing into this. Like, you know, um, everyone, you know, this is just Islamophobia. It's all over Twitter. QAnon loves it. The alt-right loves it. It's all about reclaiming Constantinople for some weird reason. Let's not play into this. Let's not give footnotes. Um, I think that's very important as our ethical job to be as, you know, to, to have some meager sense of, consent as to how our work is done. And I do think you have the ability to some extent, some meager extent to control that. Well, thank you both so much. I loved this conversation and I'm so excited for our listeners to engage with it. So thank you. Thank you.